Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Um, okay, so now, without further ado, we got Jessica Hopper and Josh Kuhn. Um, Jessica Hopper is a music critic and the author of the first collection, Critic Criticism by a Living Female Rock Critic. In a career saying more than 20 years, Hopper has earned acclaim as a provocative, fearless writer on topics ranging from the male myopia of emo music to the ways in which commercial success may have saved indie rock. She was formerly the edit editorial director at MTV News and an editor at Pitchfork and Rookie. Her essays have appeared in Best Music Writing for 2004, 2005, 2007, 2010, and 2011. And her writing appears in New York Magazine, Rolling Stone, BuzzFeed, and Book Forum, among others. Her book, The Girl's Guide to Rocking, was named one of 2009's notable books for young readers by the American Library Association. And joining her is Josh Kuhn, who is a 2016 MacArthur Fellow and the winner of a 2018 Berlin Prize. He's the director of the Popular Music Project at USC Annenberg Norman Lear Center and co-editor of the book series Refiguring American Music. He co-curates Class Fade Lab. He founded the USC Annenberg Distinguished Lecture Series on Latin American Arts and Culture. He serves on the editorial boards of the International Jour Journal of Communication. I'm not quite sure how to pronounce this word. Aslan? Did I say that right? Sort of? Aslan. There it is. Sorry. A Journal of Chicano Studies, Journal of Popular Musical Studies, and Public Culture. He's the author of Audiotopia, Music, Race, and America, which won a 2006 American Book Award. Songs in the Key of Los Angeles won a Phi Kappa Phi Faculty Merit recognition award, and To Live and Dine in L.A., Menus and the Making of, a Mo of the Modern City. As an essayist, critic, and journalist, he has contributed to the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, the American Prospect, L.A. Magazine, L.A. Weekly, and more. And they're both here to talk about Night Moves, Jessica's new book, um, which Emma Straub says, reads like a diary, immediate and urgent, Hopper and her friends prowl the streets of Chicago on bicycles, always moving, surrounded by both the city and a cocoon of occupied affection. It's full of music and pets and friendship and made me feel as if the heating bills in Chicago would be worth it. If one could have this sort of busy, free life. The book exists in the space between fact and fiction, between novel and memoir, but I knew right away that every word was true, and I will just say that I read it on a plane in two hours, and it's utterly charming. Here they are. Um, I, I just thought everyone would be at home getting drunk. Um, so I, I appreciate you making the making your way out. Uh, so I wrote this book, and I'm going to read from it. Um, it uh, it's about it, it, it takes place between 2004 and 2008 um, after I left LA and moved to Chicago. And uh, is is largely about my life there as a uh, as I was starting my writing career. And um, there's also some parts about LA, but we'll get to them. Uh, I'm just going to start with the introduction. That sort of sets up. It is titled Introduction. I came back to the Midwest from LA because the penetrability of Southern California life had gotten to me. It was February 1997. I was 21. The days documented in this book begin in spring 2004, a 
few years into what has since become a two-decade run in Chicago. This book is a testimony of sorts to my obsession with the city. In the early aughts, living in a series of extremely cheap and decrepit apartments on the edge of an industrial corridor, I was an unwitting participant in a wave of gentrification that has since subsumed the area. All empty lots mentioned here are now condos. The mousetrap punk houses were raised for redevelopment and now only exist in collective memory. I was not yet a professional writer, but I mapped that dream often. I was hardly ever without my friends. This is as much about their lives in that particular time and space as it is my own. Almost everyone mentioned in this book, like half a dozen of my friends, uh, most of them are in this audience this evening. Uh, apparently Chicago's not for you. <laughs> um, so, so a lot of the book is about going out at night and particularly going out uh, on on bikes. This book is called uh, There's a Light on My Bike That Never Goes Out. We were off to Edmar, which is decrepit, Polish, and smells like only old grocery stores smell. A little mildew, a little grandma cologne, and the musk of coriander. I opened till midnight, mostly still dog food. I got a hazelnut-ridden candy bar for a dollar. It was very big and thick and like those kinds that I used to sell in order to go on class trips back in junior high. In the lot, I noticed for the first time on my new slash old bike that I had one of these friction light generators, same as my roommate Chris's bike, the same kind of light that just three minutes before I was calling magic. And voila, it turned out I had one too. I flicked the friction maker on back into its locked box and with a mouthful of chocolate and a quick snort, I illuminated my path into the wet Chicago night. I'm shining, I yelled to Chris and reached out to give her a mini brick of the bar. We rode towards home, pulling the tin foil off the candy and devouring it, powering our tiny lights in tandem. Chris would just hold out a hand and say, more. I was so happy, as happy as I'd ever been. I told the man in the Jeep at the stop sign, we have lights on our bikes, because I wanted him to notice and to not miss the opportunity to, to witness such safety and inventiveness in motion. <laughs> I got all the way home, four blocks, and I realized I could not be home. I had to go out and power the lights some more. Every time I saw someone I knew, I stopped, offered them a square of chocolate, and showed them the glow of my new lights. See? They would eat the treat and then head in or out of the bar door, congratulating me on my newfound luminescence. I ran into Tilo, who was going into the Kill Hannah halfway to Halloween 18 plus dance party, at the Nouveau Italian restaurant. She coaxed me in. Over approximately seven minutes, I drank a water, wondered why every girl in the place bought a push-up bra slash corset and underpants for Sheila Skechers when it is a costume, heard the killers for the first time, and bummed a cigarette that I only took two drags of from a daddy goth who rocked both a sparkly cowboy hat and Sherry Lewis's eyelashes. He called me babe and made that clicking sound like he was goddamn Kelly Sabalas. I checked out some asses, got back on my bike. I did not mean to stop at the bar with big open windows where everyone looks good and seems wasted, but they yelled my name, beckoned me over. They were celebrating new tattoos and 23rd birthdays and dogs they loved and drinking Tupelone with many small bottles of champagne. I gave them my last candy square. Then, from around the doorway, a boy I spent six years with appeared. He was working the door. You have treats, he asked. Nope, those were my last ones, I said. It was not supposed to be weird, but it was. <laughs> I think he thought I was just being vindictive for that time he ruined 1997 through 2002. <laughs> I held up the empty wrapper for evidence. Sorry. 
I hopped back on my bike, sprayed to the faded, and floated home, my little light showing the way. Um, so, uh, I don't know if people here have been to Chicago, other than my friend who has abandoned it, um, but it is a, it's a grid city, and so um, there are certain streets that you can take that, uh, it's, in taking them, you can basically see like the entire span of the city in many different neighborhoods, and um, this, this particular passage is about um, writing down Damon Avenue, basically, as you know, a big stretch of the city. Uh, it's called American City, I Love You Too. Since enacting my Lenten pact to only drive for work-related errands, I'm experiencing Chicago's deep mantle power on the daily. This is not to say that I did not love this cobbled city, cobbled and blue-collared from the moment I arrived six years and three days ago, but just that having a bike and often on the same old route down Damon, I might as well be seeing it for the first time. All the apartments illuminated with blue globe TV, the living room walls gridlocked by mounted collector plates, scrubbed clean dudes in light rinse jeans, drinking beer from a can on a leather couch, viewed so easily due to the two-story basement dismaying windows in the front of their new construction complex. The patinaed crosses and gilded domes of all the bright Ukrainian churches, a dude in a red convertible Ferrari with a vanity plate reading Ferrari, <laughs> holding his dick while he cruises. It's just the stuff you miss when you're in a car with B96 up too loud. On Saturday, Al and Nora, the chain-smoking young sweet Nancy Haynesville, and I biked 14.4 miles for the psychedelic art show over at Texas Baldwin in Tulsaan. On the way, Nora and I chatted in the bike lane about girl stuff. On the way back, Nora lollygagged behind and I took off ahead, seeing just how fast I could go on my friend's fancy track bike. I was reenacting scenes from Breaking Away on the barren byways in the heart of Cook County at 2 a.m. on a spring Sunday. Taking Damon Avenue from one side of the town to another, did a good scan of Chicago, something practical to counter the highlights reel or Lakeshore Drive. Damon is all that is old, burnished, and lopsided. It is profoundly comforting to live in a city that doesn't give a shit and loves you just how you are because it, because it is every bit as marred, bereft, and cocky as you are. We came through Pilsen strip malls, past the 24-7 donut diner, over the freeway overpass where all the trucks exit for the mills and factories, through Latino revitalization and Art Institute students changing it up on routine, through nine straight blocks of taquerias and storefront churches, past Bondo's cutlasses springing to new Umpa Umpa Bandas, and then through the five blocks of the tunnel underneath the same land bridge that's so strangely clean because it's so vast and so sketchy that no one walks through it, not even to tag it which empties out into the broken cement lots and sprawling brick warehouses that once served industries that no longer exist. Past public housing bungalows isolated from their now demolished twin, the Ida B. Wellcomes in Bronzeville. Past Little Italy's ass end, through the hospital campus with its wide presidential appellative streets of Roosevelt and Washington, Barton gutters, into the direct arterials of downtown, past the bridge that spans I-290, through, the, through a near west side neighborhood holding out against gentrification, past the parking lots of the United Center, trashed after the Bulls versus Golden State Warriors game hours earlier, past a long swath of empty lots and boarded up CHA low rises, tiny mountains of debris and weedy knolls on either side of the Green Line's elevated tracks, the parts of West Madison Street that have never been rebuilt since being burned in the riots, then underneath the tracks where the best car chase in the Blues Brothers movie takes place, 
past two minutes singing, they did live songs together on the corner. Pastor Gabriel approached a friend with friends and funny outfits, waving and hugging while exiting square dance at MM. Pastor drives to the office. Underneath my favorite train bridge, seems to me more blocked, where I hung a right on Ohio and rode no-handed the last two blocks to my little house. I'm just inserting a random portion of the text. Yeah. All right. Uh, this particular idea. Oh, so this is the this is the, the during a point in the book it all takes place in Chicago for the most part. But uh, during a period of time, I had to come out to LA to take care of my dad for a few months, uh, and uh, this is this is what I wrote upon returning home after being in Chicago for a few months. And you know, no shade, LA. I used to live here. <laughs> just preemptive. Just preemptive. This particular heat. The score upon returning home, plants dead, cats alive. Back home, I went on a long walk with JR and then another with Ben. Big Luke's to get tacos and back both times. Same tacos for different people from the same place, many hours apart. Picante at 1.42 a.m. was all slobbery and slack-faced men of the office, knighted out and ousted by last call dress shirts untucked over breakless casual pants. Their voices were loud, and their jokes were louder, and their walk was a sideways amble, like that of a cartoon animal that's been hit on the head. On the curb, some white hats and a date night woman argued. I can too. I did too know that song was Radiohead. I love Radiohead. <laughs> the teasing boy replied only, I'm getting a cigarette. Yelled back. I want a cigarette, too. I did, too, know it was Radiohead. They were standing five feet apart, and I was standing between them. I believed her. She was emphatic. Those boys were just ragging on her. In Chicago, you were invisible to these people, unless you were DJing or they are really wasted. You were a ghost unless you were part of their crew, or at least part of their cast. The more drunk they become, the more they are aware of us scruffed up old pigs. When they see you, they need to know, as if baffled by their sudden discovery, why are you eating your tacos over the trash can? Living in a city of drunk jocks will keep you punk forever. <laughs> in LA, what can you rebel against? The sprawl of humanity? The zombie Pat O'Brien and the Coachella VIP? <laughs> White smog skies? Desire? I miss this boisterous, boisterous, insular, tiny big city. Everything is smaller than I remembered. I, fear I, would I feared I would come home and feel dislodged and adrift, but I don't. I feel home. So I'd like to invite my friend Jocko. about this book today, in part, because I knew I was probably talking to you tonight. 
Um, but Did you prepare? Yeah, thank you. Look it. <laughs> Perfect. Shit, dude. That's right. That's well, you're an academic. Like, right. you can't read a book with that. No. Um, and there, uh, among the many things that I'm sure we can talk about, either here or after or tomorrow or ongoing, about um, what so many people felt today watching um, uh, this spectacle, um, was a, a sense of kind of claustrophobia, maybe one feeling that, that um, I was feeling, mm-hmm. um, of the way that the air seemed to be sucked out of that room. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was unable to um, be herself and be free mm-hmm. in the context of all of the men who were around her. Mm-hmm. There was a, it was a display of unfreedom, among mm-hmm. other things. And there was a couple moments, the, the, the whole, this whole book, those of you who haven't read it, um, has this, it just vibrates with freedom. That there's a sense of movement um, that we heard um, in our Nemesrov's comment, but that the, the fact that you're on bikes, that you're on the streets, that you're outside so often, that um, was in a way in stark contrast to the, the suffocation um, on display today. But there's a couple of passages where that I, I thought maybe we'd start with that um, on, pa- on 121, on page 121, everyone turn to the book. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. It's like so autopilot. Um, uh, The the passage where you're talking about um, the crotch. Oh, yeah. It's a location? Yeah. Well, it was capitalized. It was capitalized. I assumed it was a location. There's a a map at the front of the book. It's, it's, um, if people have been to Chicago, it's it's sort of the center of, there's so many Chicagoans here. I basically don't need to explain that. Um, But it's it's an intersection where there's, that is sort of the center of the little sort of hipster borough that I live in closest proximity to is called the crotch. Okay. That just starts the paragraph. I wasn't really going to focus on the crotch. Um, uh, exiting the Walgreens, a young lady with um, a skater bangs mohawk walked past me and smiled a huge giddy smile. Her shirt read, I fucked your boyfriend in old English leather. <laughs> Sometimes I feel like the world is coarsening faster than I can handle. That last Still feel that way? Line, yeah, <laughs> but it, it, it's a really heavy line. Um, can you talk a little bit about that, the, the world coarsening? I think in some ways that that line distinguishes the time in my life where this book takes place. I think around that time, uh, this book starts when I'm about 27, 28, and so I'm kind of in the the twilight of my you know sort of carefree 20s and toddling into like. I'm a person with a career, and, and kind of maybe in the distance, I can see like a horizon of adulthood, um, and and sort of starting to not that not that I was like um, not that my focus was lessening or anything, but like you know that that like um, maybe maybe there was kind of like a, a a weight of the world because I think as I was getting older, um, in some ways I feel like my empathy was broadening. And, and was sort of gaining greater traction in the world that maybe my, my heart was softening a little bit. And I think that's sort of where that, um, that I don't know, burgeoning maturity came out of, I don't know, was, was kind of particular to that time. That choice of word there, it just seems like an, a very um, prophetic uh, choice of that word. Um, yeah, because it's a I am an oracle. So. You are, it's true. <laughs> Um, but that the, the coarsening of, of speech, of discourse, of, of um, civility, 
um, that were living, obviously, mm-hmm. in, in um, uh, very powerful ways there now. Mm-hmm. Um, and then later you, you kind of uh, do a little dance with Carl Sandburg. Mm-hmm. Um, does everyone know Carl Sandburg's work? He's sort of a very famous, he's sort of um, City's Big Shoulders is, is like his coinage, but like he's, he's very much like a, a very Chicago-identified poet, but he's, he's been dead for like probably 100 years. Yeah. <laughs> a little guy with a bow tie and a wallet. He's great. And who also you know, has had some reputation of being a kind of people's poet, a representative mm-hmm, of people's Very voice. much so. Um, and you, you talk about um, that he was uh, the, king of, the king of what, what you call tough rhetoricals. Yeah, yeah, tough rhetorical <laughs> seemed to be his forte. <laughs> but T-U-F-F, because it's a hopper book. Um, uh, and you're talking about his poem, Gone. I feel like you're looking at me like, I can't believe you actually read my book. <laughs> That's the look you're giving me. <laughs> okay. um, where you said from his poem, Gone, um, which you cite, you say so uh, from him, so we all love a wild girl keeping a hold on a dream she wants. And you say there's an entire summer in those lines, exclamation point, which ends on a light note, but there's a there's again a heaviness in that that I couldn't help but read in light of mm-hmm. uh, the moment we're living in. I I I was I don't say that to myself new to poetry, but um, maybe a little bit more than maybe about fifteen years ago, around the time that this book starts, I started reading a lot of poetry. Um, but I really my my best friend Sarah, who is a heavy character in the book. Um, um, worked at a, a great, still works at a great bookstore in Chicago, but she really helped foster my, uh, like, deepening, like, just like a, a growing hunger for Chicago and Chicago history, mm-hmm. and also Chicago literature, and basically, like, I, I was so excited to kind of connect with that lineage of the city that seemed, um, like, it, like, my, curi- my curiosity for the city was like inexhaustible. Like there was no way to exhaust it within the city, and and um, and finding these things in, in Sandberg's work, in Gwendolyn Brooks' work, um, in uh, you know the Neon Wilderness, some of the famous Chicago literature. Like it wasn't just like oh some of these things take place where I am or these streets that I'm biking down at night, and and um, to to connect with like really uh, like a deeper spiritual kinship with the city. And and I think that really, um, I mean, there was so much to fall in love with there, both in the literature of the city and the city itself. And so it was like, it was all kind of mixed together for me, I think. Mm-hmm. And this idea of, of a wild girl, what does that mean to you? Um, I, all, my, all my best friends have always been cool, wild girls. That's always what I wanted to to be, but I think I was always working too much. Um, but that, uh, I think, what is a wild girl? I mean, for me, it was always like, like, I just have always had that. I mean, there's like some of my poet friends who I identify as like the great wild girls of my Raise your hands. Okay, Liz, put up your hand, Dylan, put up your hand, Morgan, Yasi, okay, again, Mosa, too. Um, but, uh, but you know the, the the vibrancy of you know in particular s- some women who were very much like you know had heavy presence in my life particularly in my young life very much in, informed me because I think 
lots of times early on, particularly when I was a, um, a young woman in music, I knew I was in such spaces that were like uh, basically mediated by the maleness and the patriarchy. And, and I was so aware of, um, there was a privilege of being in that space, but there was also, to be in that space, you had to be the right kind of girl. And um, to have certain sort of power and currency, you couldn't, you definitely couldn't be a wild girl. You, you had to be, you know, a certain kind of way. And, and I mean, I think I spent like a solid decade sort of being like performatively like, I am the right kind of woman and I have the right kind of ambition to be in this space. And it took me a long time to sort of disentangle from that and, and perhaps evolve into my wild girl self at 42, I don't know, <laughs> wild old girl. Is that a thread though that you think you could trace throughout your music journalism and your work with? I think so now. I mean, it, it's something that it particularly in, you know, uh, the last year or so uh, has really hit home for me, just the ways that, um, I mean, this sounds like, well, I mean, it's as heavy as I mean it, like I've complicit in my own kind of just subverting myself and, and um, the ways that that shows up in some of my earlier writing of, of trying to show that I was like really um, trying to underscore my authority and, and really stake out this space in music because, because of, of the constant sense of, of challenge to me even being there. I was struck knowing, knowing your history and knowing um, your writing previously, and then coming to this book. Um, I was surprised how central um, your companions in wildness and freedom um, were not women, but were guys. Well, one of the one of the people in the book I'm now married to, but um, <laughs> but my you know kind of in the back of my mind when I finally put the whole book together with my editor Naomi uh, I was like oh this book this book is my memoir but it's also like a biography of my friend JR mm -hmm. because I don't think I did anything without him like I mean he's almost on every single page of the book because you're just constant constant companions but in, in many ways that was also um, if I had framed the book in like different time frames I've been a little bit more concerned with other things um, but he's very much my my guide and my in my love of Chicago, um, and someone who really enriched my understanding and knowledge of the city, I'd say because it's so focused on Chicago, and also because it's just about going out at night. So, um, you know, that's that's what we did, kind of pre having having our lives so heavily mediated by social media. Right. We uh, we went out with each other in public <laughs> all the time. What? It was what? What was that like? <laughs> Um, but but yeah, so it's it's um, I'm it's the one of the really exciting things about now that the book's out and talking to my friends who are in it is sort of this this sort of like Rashomon of all of our memories together. Where like they're like, but do you remember what happened after that part that night? And I'm like, no, I don't remember it unless I wrote it down in this book, basically. And and um, just piecing together everybody's memories, it's like, oh, I guess I straight up don't remember that. Mm -hmm. uh, and and just getting like a, a wider sort of blueprint of our kind of collective mm -hmm. life, of the organism of our mm -hmm. social social scene. Mm -hmm. 
So maybe I'll go further on the male friendship part because I, mm-hmm. I thought it was really interesting also as a book about your friendship with these guys. Mm-hmm. Um, like what role did, you, did the male friendships that you had in this period play uh, on like the forging of your, for lack of a better term, feminist consciousness as a um, music writer? Hmm. I don't or did I don't it? know. I, I, I don't know if it did other than, you know, my... Uh, my male friends were as nerdy as I was about stuff. And so, I mean, you know, as documented in the book, like we would just spend the whole night walking around talking about who's Scooby-Doo, yeah. you know. Um, and so, <laughs> I'm from Minneapolis. I'm so split. It's like literally, it's in, it's like a, your birthright, I guess. Um, and it's endowed upon you. Um, but that they were, they were people that, I, you know, first and foremost connected with in that way, and then also, you know, we worked on uh, fanzines together and did different things. I had DJ nights together, um, but, you know, I think, um, I think in that way, that's how they informed my writing. But I don't know if they, um, them being dudes, necessarily, um, because they were generally, generally cool and understanding. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't <laughs> rebelling against them. Right. Right. <laughs> um. Okay, so, Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I just want to say on behalf of people from Los Angeles that um, this book actually restored my belief that L.A. is the center of the world. Because, you know, this is like a book about Chicago and Chicago and Chicago and Chicago, and the first sentence is Los Angeles. <laughs> we win every time. Um, but you do have, like, L.A. is a character of this book. Mm-hmm. I mean, a, a constant, um, I know you mentioned it a little bit, but, like, there's that one. Is this one about the dog? I don't, wait, I don't, no, it was the one with the when you kind of, um, get into actually Los Angeles. Oh, yeah. Would they have been in the movie? Yeah. Cecile from John and Exine. I'm not buying a lamp on Hollywood Boulevard. <laughs> day I leave, but it does feel sad, sort of, almost not really, I'm coming home soon, I think, California skim milk skies, you gotta trademark that one, <laughs> California skim milk skies will still hang heavy over the five, whether I'm here to witness or no. Um, I mean, tell, talk to us more about your love-hate with Los Angeles, if that I made the right thing. No, 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 I mean, it's, it's not, it's, it's more like a, a love apathy. Yeah. Um, Ooh, that's even worse. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, just, but so, so I, I moved to, I, I grew up in Minneapolis, and then I, I moved here when I was 17, and lived here until I was about almost 21, and I, I moved here because I was like, well, I'd had every job I could possibly have in Minneapolis that had to do with music, and I was like, I'm not going to go work with music, go back to LA, and I, um, I got a job at Aaron's Records when I came out here, if anyone is old enough to remember that, um, and uh, and started working music out here and started playing in bands and um, uh, was pretty was pretty psyched on it here. But what I really liked about it because Minneapolis was like a you know very small pond. I like I could come out here and just basically like dissolve in the city. I could be totally anonymous. Uh, anonymous. I could be you know you know historically it's a place of you know self-invention and that's very much what I did here and that's another book but like I, I came out here and um, you know I found I found some really good friends and, and um, Jabberjaw was really like my my home 
as folks remember that as always in this venue that is very important for everyone in LA don't need a woman to blame you just need to let me know <laughs> and uh, and I've been here about three years and uh, and um, was playing in bands and and uh, doing fanzine and and Jefferson Rock closed and right about that same time I got my fake ID confiscated at uh, what was then Spaceland. <laughs> but I was um, five six, and um, which is taller than I am by several inches. Uh, that I was about 25 pounds heavier than I am now, and that I was from the valley. And so I was wrong on all counts. Um, and, I, and also, and I couldn't see shows, you know? And, and, um, and that was so, at 20, 21, I mean, that was my that was my everything, and so uh, I, I went home to Minneapolis for Christmas, and um, and a friend was like, "Oh, come to Chicago with me." And I found there was like twelve hours later. I was like, "I'm moving here. This is my place. I found my place," um, and it was it was a place that was very um, at that time, 1996-97, really happening for all all the different musics I cared about, whether it was like free jazz or hardcore, and. Um, and I went there, and that was also a place where I could really express my um, ambition for all the things I wanted to do, because I found when, at the time when I was here in LA, I think it's a much different place now, culturally, um, but especially working in music, I would say, oh, this is what I do, blah, 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 and people would be like, well, what do you do in middle school? And I'd be like, well, I want to have my fanzine and work with all these indie bands, and they're like, but don't you want to go work at a label or, you know, something else? Like, it doesn't, it just wasn't like a big enough dream to run your own company or do a magazine or something, and and so, um, but but it was very much a place for me of of I could come here and invent who I wanted to be, and it wasn't defined by the history of who I was in Minneapolis or um, or other places. And so then I moved to Chicago, um, but you know, I, I, LA was you know hugely foundational for me. That's okay. I didn't mean to okay. land there. Yeah, <laughs> we still like you. Yeah. Um, so, you mentioned in, the, uh, in one of the pieces you read at the beginning, uh, you alluded to kind of the sh shadow or cloud of gentrification mm -hmm. um, in Chicago, and so much of the of the of this book is a document of, as you said, places that are gone, but also kind of feelings that maybe are gone that are linked to those places, mm -hmm. or relationships to cuisines, to clubs, to um, a kind of uh, independent music spirit, whatever it is, even the even the the, the, the recurring images of being on a bike, moving freely through the city. Mm -hmm. um, how much do you see that period and the work that you were doing on the independent side as, in fact, being part of gentrification? I mean, oh, something 100%. that ever, lots of people are coming to grips with, right? I mean, hundred percent, and and uh, you know, we knew it at the time. Right. We knew it at the time. I don't think we. You know, uh, we, I guess, being like kind of a collective um, creative class, you know, a lot of my friends were uh, newly out of school or they were coming to Chicago to establish their bands or their art practice or, you know, whatever it was. And we were just living wherever we were living without much regard for, um, you know, a literally a footprint in, in the city. And, uh, but I knew really early on that because every place I would, like a couple of places where I lived, um, you know, we were pushed out, literally they demolished our million dollar condos, like it's so cliche, you know, so I knew that, and that kept happening, so it's like, I, I knew, like, we are a force that's bringing this as, as part of it, and you couldn't deny it, that it was like, really this, you know, sort of transactional space of, of a white 
artistic class, essentially. Um, and and so, you know, if I, I don't know what I could necessarily do differently going back in time and still living in those spaces, uh, but I, I live in the suburbs now and there's nothing to gentrify, so I'm trying to do no harm. Um, but, but yeah, you know, this theory, you know, it, in that gentrification, it, was, it wasn't just the aspect of, like, community that was getting demoed, like, the, the wider community, like, in particular, like, living in, like, a Ukrainian-Polish neighborhood that's still largely intact, um, though I was, you know, I was part of the gentrification wave that then, 20 years later, I, you know, uh, I, was I was priced out by something that I had initiated. Right. You know, so I'm, I'm just very aware of having space within that that cycle. Well, part part of that shift also, as you mentioned a second ago, is is kind of the move from um, indie arts and indie music practices into the creative industries. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, we're old enough to remember when when creative wasn't an industry or an economy. Um, we could like right. I, I try to explain to you like. <laughs> When I was coming up, it, there was like four, like maybe four jobs in music journalism. Like it wasn't an ever, ever a thing that you're like, and this will turn into a job eventually. Right. It wasn't that I didn't. Or that that job would turn into a design job. Or or yeah. anything. Yeah. Or marketing. Yeah. Or content. Or content. Exactly. Love some content. Exactly. <laughs> so let's talk about this. But I wanted there was one little detail um, that I thought was at least a little hint of this that was on um, about one of your friends. Um, despite the fact that his writing is just unbeatable, Miles, along with several of my good friends, works in the young trend department at H&M. So, <laughs> I didn't even know there was a young trend department, so that's I think I think they've since they're they're done away with it. I think it's just all one big growth. We're all, we're all young trend. Yeah, on or off. So, your, your own career, you haven't ended up in H&M. Um, Not yet. There is hope. It's only Thursday. Hope for some um, but you have your career has taken you lots of different to different kinds of places, mm -hmm. um, and you've worked as a writer for independent weeklies for zines, um, a writer for now what are now more corporate magazines, mm -hmm. um, but have also worked at MTV, mm -hmm. um, recently at Spotify. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk about those negotiations in your own life about moving between all those those spaces? Yeah, I think. I mean, I didn't ever anticipate, uh, I, the, I didn't get a job till I was 38, um, and so w working at a job uh, is, it was a new skill that I had to acquire, um, not to be all LinkedIn about it, but, um, <laughs> you know, I didn't think, I didn't, I didn't think I was someone who could exist in those spaces, and, um, you know, uh, I, I worked at Pitchfork for a while, and that was sort of one particular kind of space that was... Uh, running a magazine, I was kind of a natural step up from like the fanzine world that I came through, and then MTV News was um, its own magical place in time. Um, and then some of the more like corporate things that I've done since then were like almost like experiments for me because I was like, oh, like this is just another skill. Uh, and for me, those negotiations I think are were less 
that had to do with like writing or, or kind of my, I don't say like my ethical or moral central, but cent center, but had to do more with growing up and being um, a Montessori kid and just being like, I'm curious about something, so I do it. Um, but did, did, you know, 20 year old, 22 year old me, that was like, you know, nothing, nothing but judgment yeah. about other people's, you know, what, what counted as being a sellout and not, you know. Uh, <laughs> I mean, certainly that lessens over time, but it just, I, I think young me would have been surprised that I worked for anybody, really. So. I do like Montessori as the rationale for things. <laughs> <laughs> you can hold on to that for a little bit. <laughs> but that's, I, I, wonder, yeah. I wonder more if science was in eighth grade, and, and it really is like, um, you just, you learn by doing it. You're curious about something. And, so, and I didn't go to college, and so it was like, most of my adult life, I think, has been, um, um, of just seeking my own education, you know. Did working for MTV News and working for Spotify change the way you thought about musical things? Working at MTV News changed how I thought about a lot of things, but about writing and about writing community. Mm -hmm. um, working at Spotify did not. In either direction? No. Apathy. <laughs> Something like that. You know, it's 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 a multi-page NDA. You know. <laughs> well played. Yeah. Um, well, the MTV News moment. Um, maybe we should talk about it a little because I think it's also MTV News in the house over here in that aisle. Um, was also a really important time, um, obviously in sh in the kind of shifting um, place of journalism. The, the pivoting. Um, of journalism. Yeah, pivoting yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, uh, and your kind of overt attempt to create a community of writers that looked like a community of writers that a few other places had. Um, and can you talk about that kind of agenda for you? <laughs> Might try. Um, no, uh, the, I, after, after I did this book, the show and tell, um, after I did this book um, and, and had kind of gone uh, that after I, after I did that book and had reread everything I'd ever written and published, you know, 20 years of my work, I was like pretty exhausted by my own voice, but also felt that then I had, I had taken a lot of my early feelings to like their logical extension point and I just wanted to edit. And part of the reason I wanted to edit was to give people, um, use what power I had to give other people the opportunities that I had coming up that I could see were like almost non-existent mm -hmm. and um, to do what I could to basically uh, elevate that and that was very much part of my feminist agenda mm -hmm. um, just to, to make music writing more inclusive because um, that that was just that's just what I wanted I mean that's just what I wanted as a reader mm -hmm. you know as a group of uh, surly, you know, little white girl rejecting the canon, and so that part is still very much intact in me as an editor. And is that also, I assume, transferring into the book you're writing now, you're working on now? Want to talk about that? Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> it's still in proposal. Yeah. Um, the concept? Uh, yeah, uh, I'm, I'm working on a, a book about uh, women in 1975 and about... Um, women in music in 1975 and 
and kind of uh, locating that time and place as a, um, I don't want to say birth of women in rock because it spans um, all sorts of things, but really uh, yeah, women, women writing songs about their own lives uh, and those songs becoming hits and that's really kind of the first time you really see that happening. And you also explored that in a different way with the most recent Rolling Stone piece, or uh, yeah. I don't know if it's most recent, but yeah. recent Rolling Stone piece. Um, I don't know if everybody read that, but it was it's a, a must read if you haven't. It's fantastic. It, I, I read uh, there's there's a, a biography of Jan Renner that came out last year and about the whole arc of Rolling Stone, and I read somewhere like around you know page like three fifty, there's like this mention of like you know it's a total boys club, it's a total boys club, and the women there had they said a club for mutual aid and support, and I was like, what the fuck does that mean? <laughs> And so I, I found these women, and I was like, tell me about your club. They're like, it wasn't a club. It was a feminist consciousness raising group, and every single woman that worked at Rolling Stone was in it. And I was like, oh, despite the fact that this is something that I've cared about so deeply for literally my entire life, um, I had no idea about this. And so it felt very important to me to be like, if I don't know the story, then like nobody knows the story. And so I did this oral history of the first um, five women to be on the editorial masthead at Rolling Stone, whose work had been just uniformly erased. And as I was in the middle of writing that story, uh, the day before I was supposed to interview one of the women, she died. And it just was like, it just felt that much more urgent, like, okay, we don't know what her experience was, you know, and it just was. Um, and she was, she was like the longest running female editor at Rolling Stone, you know, so uh, that, those sort of histories, particularly now that I'm getting a little bit older and I see the work of uh, different writers, not just female writers, uh, being erased or things being, people who are really iconic to me being left out because of the digital divide. You know, the, uh, the critic that was so formative to me was Celine Charles Sutton, who was the pop critic at, at uh, the music critic at City Papers, the Alt Weekly where I was growing up. Um, because it's pre-digital age, and she was, I just thought every city had like a female pop critic at the paper, and I just thought that was something to do. It turns out she was like literally the one, um, and but that gave me the idea that I could do this, and and I go, I send people to go find her clips, and they're like, oh, I can only find like a couple things, and it's just not archived, and it's just like, uh, okay, I'm gonna have to put out that book, you know. And it's it's got to be somewhat true for all weekly, not across the country, but market mm -hmm. Rolling Stone could go. I mean, The Guardian had you know major um, women critics writing. Mm -hmm. um, Boston Phoenix mm -hmm. was obviously. Mm -hmm. um, but there's a whole kind you, of mythology. But it's like you lose you lose major like you Spots, you yeah. you lose your lineage. Yeah. So this is uplifting. So I was gonna say. So let's, <laughs> okay. uh, no, I'm ready. I'm gonna end. Here I'm we gonna are at journalism's wake. Thank Here's you, my everyone. last question. Here's my last question. Uh, and then we'll, let's open it up. But um, kind of early on in the in, in this book, and it really is. If you, if, if you have it yet, if you've read it yet, like you will go the buy them, buy it, buy it. Um, because it really is. For I'm focusing on certain kind of content point bits, but the the the, the writing in it is um, it, uh, incredibly lively, and also just so. And I've read you for so long that it's nice to to actually. Um, realize that writers you follow have all these different 
possibilities in their writing and have and that and that this is my basically my 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 natural voice is your natural voice um well your natural voice is super funny um and also you capture uh time and place just just beautifully like the you heard it in some of the opening pieces the attention to detail but um let me just end by asking you about this there's a moment early on where you're um talking about the importance of riding bicycles um but what I know in Chicago a bike is faster than a car and so I'm seeing what happens now seeing what happens when I commit to becoming a non-driver because at a certain point the question becomes if I'm not living my most hopeful politics at the advanced age of 29 then what am I doing um oh you you bet you better believe that when I came across it for the first time in the manuscript it was like having a brick dropped on my head it was like oh wow it was Putting this book together helped me get so much more deeply in touch with like the reasons why I write and how m- how much I the things that I believe in the world come into my critical framework mm-hmm. and um, it was it was really energizing in a time that I needed it I for a couple of years I was editing and I have a really hard time writing and editing at the same time and um, it just even like I can only think with my editor brain, and um, and so I hadn't written in like almost like three years until quite recently, maybe four, close to four years, and I thought um, I came to believe that maybe I was done writing and maybe I didn't need I had like said everything I needed to say and I was just maybe I should go do something else, which is like so wild how my brain can trick me. Um, like this is literally my only marketable skill. Um, I don't know what I was thinking I would do. Um, and and that reading that when I took my first class on editing the book, it it was absolutely responsible for sort of drawing me back in to and reminding me that this is a, a that my writing is a place where I can absolutely put my politics and my head. That really sounded like a sound bite. No one's asked me about that. that. Really so, it's a great sound bite. Questions, comments? People want to dispute <laughs> what happened? Who were there? The Fences of LA? so many um, one thing that I am pretty aware of like in terms of um, LA history is that sometimes there was you know women who were very clearly behind the scenes who were people who were you know whether they were like promoters or things like that that I think are always important to investigate and you know crucial women that ran venues early on but I think the main thing that I think about when you ask that question is um, 
as you may know, almost like every history of punk is basically like the same seven or 12 talking head dudes. I hope Henry Rollins isn't here. Um, but you know, that it's, it's always like kind of the same, uh, and he's like this, and it's like, we, we really only kind of have those accounts. And there's some decent like oral histories where we kind of work people in, but it's like, I, I really want to know what LA was like you know, I want like the story of like the first year of the go-go. Um, and some other things where you're like, shouldn't we have that book? And we just don't. And so, I, I mean, I think, I think there's so much space to excavate um, around that. I think it's the, that those questions are maybe under surface. It's a difficult question to answer. And I would add to that, we need a, a huge study of black women in LA gospel, like way back, like founding, founding, pioneering mm -hmm. figures in gospel music in Los Angeles were all women. Um, as music publishers, as singers, as instrumentalists. I feel like you have, you could have like, well, you know so much more about LA music history than I do. You, you could, you could just keep, like, keep going. Give some assignments. <laughs> Give us some homework. Uh -huh. No, we'll leave it there. Okay. Yeah. Other questions? person for like a year, um, <laughs> but it, um, Punk Planet was, was great for me first as a reader, but then was one of the reasons that I wanted to move to Chicago because I kept reading about the Fireside Boys in there, and I was like, they sound like crazy. How are these guys all playing together? And um, But also one of the great things about Punk Planet, I think, is very much influenced particularly by uh, Riot Girl, and I was very influenced by Fugazi, and so this I idea of what, you know, was punk in Punk Planet was really expansive and really sought to be, inclu you know, sort of inclusive, what what counted as inclusive in punk at that time. And so for me that was, um, but being able to have a column there, that was the first time I ever wrote reviews that weren't basically like, this band is trash. You know, like <laughs> writing, a, the first thing that I ever wrote that was like an essay was um, uh, was a column there called uh, that is called Emo Where the Girls Aren't. So that's an essay in there that sort of is a seminal work of mine. Uh, <laughs> uh, but that but that I that I had the space to do that and that it was you know pre digital era. I mean like if you were in a band, if you were in these scenes, if you were part of that world, everyone read it, and so it was an incredible way to distribute my opinion. <laughs> Thank you. Anyone else? I'm just curious about the name. It's just because I left Chicago about the same time you arrived and left for New York. And that was like a Palestinian base. It was there the important parts I had to do. You toured over to LA like Road and Leaf, you know, Magna Carta coming down. Uh, what's it like now? Because I was there as like a young queer 
Red Realty, mm-hmm. I had my own experiences at Parker, but, you know, I remember all too well what that was like. I mean, the Pearson Field, you know, there were kids in Chicago every day. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Are they all right? Are they all right? <laughs> <laughs> From my perch in the suburbs, everything <laughs> seems fine. Um, it, I think, you know, one of the reasons I really like living in Chicago is that it is it is still a space where um, kids in the Midwest still move. You know, it's still like the jump off from Louisville um, or, you know, Madison or whatever. And so it is a place that is, um, there's a constant talk between that and what Brown Institute and, and how vibrant the hip-hop scene is right now. There's constantly talk of young people coming into the city and like renewing it with their ambition and their ideas. And I think right now the things that are really exciting are um, the a lot of the people who have come out of uh, YCA, Young Chicago Authors, and uh, the Poetry scene in particular, is I think what makes the hip-hop scene that's coming out of that uh, like so fucking exciting, and I think that's the best music in Chicago, basically, right now, but there's also, like, a really um, awesome uh, kind of extreme synth noise terror scene that is dominated by uh, young queer women and women of color, which is, like, like that's that's what I was waiting for for like twenty years. So there's there's a lot of things that are really exciting here. Um, I wish there was more um, all ages space and more, you know, house shows and venues. But a lot of those have also been swallowed up. And there's a lot of people who are trying to get like a real all ages community uh, safe space off the ground. And it's been like years, and, and it's a real struggle. So um, I'm hoping some of those things sort of coalesce. But right now, the thing that I I pay the most attention to is kind of this girl noise scene and uh, the poetry scene coming out of YCK. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Chicago is historically like the most segregated city in America, and it's and it's huge, and uh, I think. I mean, there's many, many different Chicagos. The Chicago that is my Chicago is not the same for anybody who even would live two neighborhoods away, let alone on the far west side or the far south side. And so, um, I mean, Chicago, Chicago, I think, is such a, a culturally rich city in so many different ways, but it's also a city that's incredibly stratified. And so the um, much like the rest of America, but in some really extreme ways, the people who are living in poverty are basically, you know, criminalized and really, like, you know, shuttered to a part of the city, and then people who have, you know, a modicum of wealth lead really different lives in the same city. And um, so there's, uh, there's that, uh, but that, uh, I mean, it's still just, like, really, like, in spite of all of the things that hang over Chicago. And one of the things that I have always really loved about it, but in different different ways, sometimes love, hate, is like the brokenness of the city, which, you know, is funny to read about it in books. Not funny, it's not funny. But reading about it in like historic Chicago works of literature or, you know, uh, Fred's Circle Division Street, and you're like, this city's been fucked since the jump. 
like this is a really historically corrupt, messed up city, um, but it's also a city that's still pretty like affordable to live, and it's still, um, it's just always been a city where people have come to make things and can really have an independent vision and build something themselves. So I think it's still a really um, amazing city. I mean, gentrification is happening everywhere. I mean, a lot of people I know are like, well, if I'm going to pay this much for rent, might as well move to L.A. or New York. I mean, that's definitely something that's happened. We're aware of this. <laughs> you're, you're, we're, we're out here decimating your water table. That's right. Um, I, I think this is, a, uh, on that note, I like ending on a good water table line. <laughs> it's always the goal. Um, everyone needs to go buy this book, get it signed, come hang out. Tell stories. Thank you all for coming. Jessica, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for coming. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.